In what seemed like an impossible feat just two weeks ago, Brett M. Kavanaugh was sworn in as the 114th Justice of the United States Supreme Court. For better or for worse, Kavanaugh's triumph has galvanized the right and enraged the left. Who needs an October surprise after this? I'm Tiana Lowe. And I'm Avery Hogarth. This is The Political Pregame. Sit down and have a drink with us. As we head into the final month before the midterms, with our political sphere as heated as ever, you'll need it. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. This week, we are drinking tequila because, honestly, nothing fancy. We just need tequila after everything that's gone on. A little bit of lime. Um, (laughs) Just a good old-fashioned tequila soda. Anyways, obviously, with us recording on Sunday, this is after the vote that has confirmed uh, Brett Kavanaugh as our next Supreme Court justice. And with there being so much, I guess, documentation of this and commentary about all of the confirmation proceedings in the media and everything. We don't really want to beat a dead horse. We kind of just want to wrap this all up, talk about what's gone on, maybe our feelings, sentiments from both the Democratic and Republican angles, and then look at what we're focusing on in politics next, where each party is going to go with their messaging in terms of being, I guess, one month away pretty much from the midterm elections and then seeing what's going to happen even after that. Yeah, I mean, if we think about the timing of news cycles, obviously a month is an extraordinarily long time in politics these days. But think about uh, in 2016, October, that month, how long that month felt, but how much everything that happened sort of hung over as a cloud on everything that happened next. So there were the Access Hollywood tapes, and that was, what, the middle of October? So obviously a bit... um, later than these Kavanaugh hearings and confirmation. But still, Access Hollywood was seen as, would this be the October surprise? And then it was the Comey letter. And the Comey letter was probably what did it in for Hillary. Now, the stakes are less high, but the anger might be even more indelible here. So what's at stake in these midterms following the Kavanaugh hearing? Right now... The Republicans have an effective majority on the Supreme Court, although obviously we can have a debate about uh, judicial philosophies and how much power the Supreme Court itself should have. But Republicans have an effective majority on the Supreme Court. They have a majority in the Senate. They have a majority in the House. And obviously Trump is president. So at stake following this, and I think that this has really galvanized both sides You have the House in play, the Senate in play, and more than anything, the 2020 auditions for the Democrats. You think you're seeing rhetoric already with especially Senator Christian Gillibrand, Senator Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, I am Spartacus. They're getting ready for the auditions now. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw, I mean, even Elizabeth Warren said that after the midterms, she will decide whether or not she's running for president. So... To refocus this on Kavanaugh specifically, this began with a Bush-era mainstream right-of-center A++ ABA-rated federal judge appointed as Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court. Then a sexual assault allegation is unearthed. Then what ha- what, let's imagine a scenario in which Dianne Feinstein received the letter from Christine Blasey Ford 
sent it to the FBI, confidentially shared it with the rest of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Republicans in the Senate Judiciary Committee investigate it, and maybe they find evidence. Maybe they don't find evidence. Either way, they can go to Trump and say, we think that it is more likely than not that Kavanaugh is either guilty or not guilty. Trump either says, you know what? FBI investigated it. He's cleared. Christine Blasey Ford's name never enters the public sphere. Her family never gets any harassment. Kavanaugh's name is either pulled from the nomination or Trump stands by him. And like that, he becomes a Robert-style justice. Instead, Dianne Feinstein holds on to this letter for two months with the ability to question him under oath confidentially. She lets this thing pass until the week before the confirmation vote. And then all hell breaks loose. You have the Deborah Ramirez allegation come out in the New Yorker in which the media completely hypes this up as being as detailed and as damning as Blasey Ford's, which, mind you, still doesn't have evidence, but has someone who does not seem like a very intent political actor, someone who clearly, as we saw in her hearing, can hold her own. You have NBC News writing these insanely fallacious and just false stories in which they suggest that Kavanaugh was witness tampering with text messages when actually Kavanaugh was just warning his friends that they would have to speak on the record about this publicly. And they omit the fact that Ramirez herself was fishing for other Yale classmates to basically trash talk Kavanaugh. Then Democrats can thank Michael Avenatti for bringing out the gang rape allegation, perhaps the most absurd of them all. So where does this leave us? The right is pissed and I believe more united than I've seen probably since the Tea Party, which is weird because you have a bunch of people who still don't like Trump, will never like Trump, who are still going to vote red in the midterms because that's not a reflection of Trump. It's a reflection of how insane the Democrats are. On the left, you have the Democrats pissed, feeling like they weren't able to block this vote. And more importantly, like their leadership is incompetent. So... All of this really could have been avoided. And as Mitch McConnell put it, um, the Democrats and protesters managed to do what he and Republican leadership couldn't, fire up Republicans to go out and vote. If you look at the enthusiasm jump, especially among white women, which is demographic that Democrats need to come up for them or to knock out for Republicans, they're fired up for the GOP. So all of this is to say that This is, I think, a unique political moment in which anger is at an all-time high, but the debate is so surface level, and the debate is so disjointed, because on the Republican side, you see people talking about the truth and people talking about evidentiary standards. On the Democratic side, you have the discussion about the seriousness and the salience of sexual assault as a political issue. And I think that most people who are going out to the polls genuinely believe in their sides. And I think the leadership has become so deeply cynical that it's scary to think where we will be for any outcome of the midterms. Well, it'll be interesting to see where the messaging goes to for each party moving into the final four weeks before the midterms. Um, Just in terms of, I think... Democrats now have to lick their wounds and move on and try to find a way to 
get their team across the finish line in terms of the November midterms. And then Republicans, it'll be interesting to see if this becomes a point for them where this is like their only campaign messaging in the last four weeks. Yeah. Uh, just using this to rally up the base and get out voters who, you know, might have stayed at home just because of the fact that they feel as though they can't support the Trump administration and some actors that are within the Republican Party if this forces them to come out and vote red down the ballot. So it'll be interesting to see where the messaging moves because before this, I can't even remember. It's crazy. I think the news cycle was just so saturated with everything Kavanaugh-related in the past month that it's hard to remember even what the messaging was for either party before this, what each party was using to get people to rally behind them and and get people motivated to come out and vote and and register to vote. So that's what I'm going to be really keen to look at in these next couple weeks and seeing from the strategic perspective what each party uses. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm definitely not someone to tout the leadership and tout the strategy of the Democratic Party, especially in the last couple years. So we'll see if they can move on from this to something savvy and something that can salvage those independent voters. But again, as much as, yes, this definitely served to rally both bases on either side, either for or against Kavanaugh, I'm still skeptical to see, and I guess we'll see in the midterms, but I'm still skeptical regarding actually how much this will influence um, independent voters or those who weren't already completely opposed to Kavanaugh when he was just a nomination in July and those who were all for Kavanaugh when he was a nomination in July. I think those who initially opposed Kavanaugh severely opposed him when these allegations came out, of course, and those who supported Kavanaugh in the beginning obviously severely supported him when these allegations came out. I think it just made those supporters even voice or their su- the supporters wow, supporters or those against the him is really getting to you, voice their concerns just more loudly, I guess I would say in the in the last month. So, we'll see where this goes from here. Yeah, and Trump's greatest skill has always been trolling people into self-immolation. He did it with little Marco and low energy Jeb and lion Ted Cruz, his dad obviously killed JFK. And then he did it to Hillary. Trump has always been good at trolling people into self-immolation. Trump's greatest trick in this entire administration. It's been two things. One, he keeps his promises. That's basically what he is. And I think that has something to do with the bigotry of low expectations. Realistically, the expectations for Trump were not high. The expectations for Trump, I mean, in part. The bar was on the floor. The bar, yeah. Like below, uh, it was in the basement. The bar was below sea level. It was like, it was like, if he can like stand on a podium and like speak proper English and not start nuclear war, like. like, uh, Yeah, just basically, hopefully he doesn't push the nuke button. So. This is something Democrats need to learn. Two things. One, expectations are everything. The fact that Trump didn't start nuclear war is a point for him that wouldn't be a point for any other Republican president. Which is ridiculous. Or even the point yeah. that, like, Trump didn't tweet that heavily yeah. about the Kavanaugh hearings. Like, yeah. what? So, like, Why are we praising someone for yeah. only putting out, like, Three shitty tweets only, instead of ten. Like only making okay. fun of like someone claiming sexual assault once, you know? And then yeah. oh, secondarily, the media the media really screwed the pooch on this one. The media wow. I so the last time I can think of the media committing such journalistic malpractice 
was around December 2017 when there were all of the protesters rising up against the Iranian regime. And the media decided to frame it as, oh, it was economic problems that are leading people to be upset. No, these are people who don't want to live under Sharia law, under like an oppressive dictatorship. So, and I remember radio silence. I was extremely thankful of like the few people who were willing to talk about it. It was like Jake Tapper and I don't know, I'm sure like one dude at the New York Times, no one else. And so conservatives were livid about this and then the left accused us of being Islamophobic against the Iranian dictatorship that oppresses millions of Muslim people. But anyway, so this is almost comparable to that, but so much worse. Because if you consider the amount of stories that came out and invalidated Blasey Ford's argument, it's, I mean, the fact that Michael Avenatti was put on CNN and his client's allegations reported on as though they were worth anyone serious vetting. Everyone needs to stop giving this guy a platform, just like everyone needs to stop giving Stormy Daniels a platform. And I don't get it because We're not Democrats aren't even aligning themselves with Avenatti or Stormy Daniels. Everyone is kind of looking at them like, what the hell is this going on? It's basically, yes, politics is a circus right now, but they're running their own little traveling circus by themselves and no one understands what's going on. So it's because they think that they're trolling Trump and realistically Trump doesn't give, give a shit. The, like, Trump, Trump, Trump screwed probably half the Playboy Mansion throughout the 80s. He could not care less about Stormy Daniels. Even when I talk to the most left-leaning Democrats I know, no one brings up Avenatti and Stormy Daniels as a talking point against Trump or against Republicans or anything by that matter. So I wish they would go away. And even just everyone wishes they'd go and away. Yet, I don't and it. yet the media and yet takes them platforms. so seriously. Yeah. And I mean, as the media, the greatest thing I think I learned in the whole Kavanaugh news cycle is that the media learned nothing from 2016. Maybe the DNC learned something from 2016. I don't know. We'll decide who they try and prop up for their presidential candidate. Maybe their messaging will get a little bit better. But the media sure as hell learned nothing. They So the New York Times reported that Trump got the equivalent of $2 billion in free media coverage because CNN would play his empty podium at his rallies during the campaign waiting for him while Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz were giving actual speeches. Yeah. Because they thought, oh my God, Trump is so crazy as the Pied Piper candidate. He's so wild that he gets his views and he probably won't win. Big mistake. So I, for a while I was thinking about Avenatti. I was thinking, all right, everyone keeps on comparing him to Trump. Yes, in the same way that I think Trump has fun when he fights. I think Avenatti has fun when he fights. They're both brash. They both have a way with words, if you can call it like that. They both have this weird machismo appeal that for some reason people on their side like. Whatever. Creds to them. But when people started talking about Avenatti wanting to run for president, I thought, this is horseshit. Like, Trump was a household name for two decades before he even talked about running for president. You know, he was already someone with perfect name recognition. I was thinking, Avenatti doesn't have that at all. Then I was reading CNN one day, and I saw a Chris Chaliza article, of course, and he was saying, reasons why Avenatti will never be the Democratic nominee for president. And then I thought, oh my God, he's totally going to be the Democratic nominee for president. Yeah, let's just stop I, talking like, about this guy. Like the fact that CNN said it wasn't going to happen means it's going to happen. I know. Oh gosh, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. It's so scary. Um, he could actually be the Democratic nominee. Because I mean, if you compare him, if you compare his ability to fight, 
quote unquote, to Amy Klobuchar, Kristen Gillibrand, like these women who just kind of like act really, really, really angry and high and mighty and then take their fat corporate check from like Wall Street. Avenatti has an actual appeal, and that's terrifying. We do not want an Avenatti versus Trump fight. Honestly, I, I don't mean this offensively at all, but I think the one difference is, is that within the Democratic left, there's not really a base for those kind of, like, circus, like, just, like, brutish characteristics as much as there is on, like, the fringe right. In terms yeah, of, like, definitely. there's not the rally around the flag effect on the fringe left as there is around the fringe yeah. right. And so that's, in my opinion, why Avenatti will never be able to have the effect that Trump's had or even, not even someone with the name recognition of Trump, but just if you look at any of kind of these lower level political races where the super hardcore MAGA people who normally people would say, oh my God, you're completely unqualified and what you're saying is ridiculous, are able to now have a base and get through these primaries and actually, you know, put in a pretty good fight to be able to win these things. So I think that's one main difference there. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into our 2020 projections later on, but I just think it's... (laughs) I mean, actually, should we just break and just do it now? Should we just do our 2020 production projections? I mean, sure, yeah. Okay, because, all right, so I know that betting odds came out. Vegas bookers are betting on Kamala Harris's number one. People who think that Kamala Harris can be president are not from California. Kamala Harris was not a, she was not a well-liked state attorney general. She has flip-flopped on everything. She is to the... She is more extreme than Jeff Sessions when it comes to civil asset forfeiture. She's not very libertarian. Her background in San Francisco is sketchy at best if you look at the personal relationships that she was able to use to climb her way up like the political ladder. Really what she is is an extremely attractive face, a relatively poised voice, every minority under the sun, and she wears a pantsuit better than Hillary Clinton. I don't know. I think Hillary Clinton rocks a pantsuit pretty well. But... Um, what I will say is in terms of the traits that she does have for, and I, I definitely, a lot of people are seeing Kamala as one of the front runners and why I don't see her as one is some of the details that you mentioned. I think if you get her in a one-on-one debate setting with someone from the opposing party, I'm not even talking about Trump, but I think they will be able to poke severe holes. Although that being just because of her resume, her record, you can say that she has been absent from the state of California. And obviously, you know, if she is the nominee, California's a blue state, they're going to vote for her. But just in terms of the sentiments amongst Californians in do they believe that she has represented them well in the Senate? Um, From what I can tell, no, no one's her biggest fan or anything like that. But she is a very skilled speaker in terms of the fact that she's very elegant eloquent um when she's talking even in the uh Kavanaugh hearings you can tell her her skill shines through as a former prosecutor um everything like that she knows how to put in a show far better than Cory Booker or any of her yeah if if we're gonna talk about people who are kind of in her league right now a a Cory Booker Kamala beats him but if we're gonna talk about her Kamala going against a potential Joe Biden presidential run or Elizabeth Warren, I think those two edge her out just because they have far more solid resumes, way less talking points to be able to, I guess, create doubt within Kamala or poke holes in her resume and 
point to times where she has kind of climbed up the political ladder. So in my opinion, Joe Biden would be the best pick, but if he's going to run is the main question. And what sucks about the Democratic Party right now and where things have gone, if I can just even use um, the midterm elections right now as an example, is we're seeing so many Democrats try to run for office and it's just diluting the voter the voter pool. So in so many primaries across America for these last midterm election this last midterm election cycle, we saw there being maybe three Republicans going for the nomination compared to eight Democrats. And then you get to a point where there's a couple really well-qualified candidates and other ones that aren't so well-qualified, but they're running for their own, I guess, personal gain and incentives, where if you really want to see what's best for the Democratic Party, you should step aside and look at the long term, look at the big picture and say, you know what, it's best if I put all of my support behind this candidate and endorse him or her and let the voters be able to put all their efforts behind volunteering for their campaigns, fundraising, all of those things, and that candidate getting their messaging out. Because there's going to be a circus moving into the 2020 elections with so many Democrats thinking that this is their chance to run for president. I mean, basically, Kamala Harris isn't even the senator of California right now. She's a presidential nominee for 2020. And that's how she's speaking. But there's going to be way too much of a diversity in ideas for people to really understand what the Democratic Party stands for in 2020. And that I mean, was... What do, what, okay, Avery, what does the Democratic Party stand for right now? Because right, if I listen to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I learn one thing. If I listen to Kamala Harris, I learn another thing. And if I listen to Joe Biden, I learn a third thing. Well, exactly. And, and I couldn't even tell you. And that was something that was central to Hillary's downfall in 2016 as well. She didn't have a good message. If you looked at, if you said, what does Trump stand for? And you pulled a hundred people, I bet you 80% of them would say the same three things. But if you pulled a hundred people for Hillary, what she stood for, you know, you'd get so many different responses. And that's what we're looking at now. The Democratic Party needs to say, what is the winning strategy for 2020? And then once they define that, they need to put three candidates that into the spotlight that represent that messaging and put all of their support behind them and then see what happens, let them duke it out. And and through the debates, it'll show who is, you know, the superior candidate. Yeah. But right now, there is, there's Democrats who are more of like a Joe Biden-esque, have the respective Republicans. And then there's Bernie Sanders, Ocasio-Cortez. And then there's Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, ultra progressive versus super moderate. And within the Democratic Party, you're seeing almost two different parties in and of themselves. So if it continues along that path, I don't have high hopes. I think, and I've said this before, but I think if Joe Biden doesn't run, Trump will be a two-term president. And I'll I'll call that right now. Unless someone else, unless someone else proves themselves, I mean... Elizabeth Warren could step in there, get a little bit a more of that moderate problem. People don't like Elizabeth Warren. People like Joe Biden, and and I that might be. I think she has. I, I think she has called. better, like well, definitely better likability than Hillary Clinton. But as far as female candidates go, especially on the Democratic side, likability is you know a difficult trait to begin yeah. with, just in terms of how it's polled and everything. But I think Elizabeth Warren, she's not unlikable, and she's. A little more, 
I guess she seems a little more reasonable than a lot of these other female candidates that are running. If I'm she looking at from an independent right perspective, yeah. everything like that, running in, a, you know, she's has the Massachusetts voter base. Um, but again, I think if Joe Biden doesn't run, the chances of Trump being a two-term president are very high. And I think the only other person that could be comparable to Joe Biden right now would be Elizabeth Warren, unless someone else kind of steps up. But a Kirsten Gillibrand, a Kamala Harris, um, anyone like that. Yes. Trump the, would make hay the of scary, them on the Well, debate the scary stage. thing is, is that within the Democratic primaries, they have a great chance at securing the nomination because yeah. of what I've been talking about of these leftists, these calls to the left just to get through a primary and then all of a sudden have to rebrand your messaging to make yourself seem more moderate. We saw this in primaries across the country more moderate Democrats running against super Bernie leftist candidates. And that's why Bernie and Ocasio-Cortez were traveling throughout the country. And in order for those candidates to just survive and make it through the primary, they had to throw bones to the fringe left movements of their party. But then how do you backtrack on that once you get through yeah. the primary? So that's something that would be troubling for an Elizabeth Warren to get through the primary, still save face for the independent voters when she's going up against far left people like Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker. Yeah. And I think that one of the greatest things to happen to the Republican Party and specifically to happen to Donald Trump is the Never Trump Coalition. Because realistically, outside of a few people, outside of Tom Nichols, maybe Bill Kristol, Evan McMullen doesn't even count because Evan McMullen is not a Republican. Outside of those few, few, few main talking heads, the overwhelming majority of people who are never Trump are people more like me, who are sometimes Trump, who are maybe I disagree with his personal character. I don't know if I'll ever cast a ballot for him. Probably not. But... I can support his policy when he's good, and I'm more than willing to call him out when he's wrong. And I bring this up because if you point to somewhere like the Arizona Senate primary, where you had Martha McSally versus Jarapayo versus uh, Kelly Ward, this is an instance when you had two crackpots who split the vote among all the crackpots so a Martha McSally could win. I think Democrats have this problem where you don't have an ombudsman. And and it took Trump for the Republicans to get the ombudsman. Think about it. Think about how gross the rhetoric got during the Obama administration. It got gross. It got borderline racist. It got, there were a lot of problems with the rhetoric. And I'm not saying mainstream Republicans. I'm not saying Paul Ryan was secretly issuing, like, racist dog whistles. I really don't believe that. But among the fringes of our commentators, among the fringes of voters who were voter opinion, and it's like the rise of Trump sort of issued the shockwave that we needed. And now we have a president whom I don't, I'm not a huge personal fan of. I think that if you look at his, his executive successes, they've been great and I've been pretty happy with it. I mean, a lot, again, a lot of it might be like the bigotry of low expectations. But if you look at what it could have been, what it was hyped up to be versus what it actually is, I like tax cuts. I like our judicial nominees. I like moving the Israeli embassy to Jerusalem. These are all things that I'm happy with. Democrats need an ombudsman. Democrats cannot afford to continue to ignore the fact that the overwhelming majority of the country doesn't want Medicare for all. They don't want free college. In fact, they see these wealthy white kids from Harvard talking about free college, majoring in poetry, and they wonder, wait, what? Why don't you just like go out and get jobs like the rest of us? Why don't you try and 
minimize student debt. And it's like there's no, I don't know, I could go in like the free college rant for a while and I think we should, I think we should actually dedicate a time and another week to discuss it. But there are just so many things that are economically not viable, but less salient than that are all the identity politics. I mean, if, if Democrats want to continue to alienate white women, they can continue to do exactly what they've been doing. Because right now there's so much political capital on who is the biggest minority that people like Linda Sarsour, who is pretty openly anti-Semitic, is taken seriously because she checks off all the right boxes in all like the wokeness and virtue signaling of the Women's March. The Democratic Party needs to actually identify policy objectives, strategy objectives that they would want to invoke once they're in office rather than counting on voters to just counting on people to just vote for them because they know Democrats are pro-choice or they know Democrats want free health care and they're they're in favor of that. They need to start telling people not what we believe in, but what you're going to do and how you're going to do it and how you're going to get there. Not we wish there was free health care. We wish there was free college. We we wish that um, women had the right to choose if they wanted abortions and that was never challenged. We, they need to say, we think America needs this tax because this will help X, Y, and Z, and here's the ripple effect of that, and here's why that's going to elevate you. Not free this, free that, yeah. and because you are from a minority group vote for us because we care about you more it's they tell but they don't show so they need to start showing how they'll do that because right now i think people could be on board for something that is on the pathway towards medicare for all but the problem is there is such a poor taste in people's mouth whenever someone says that word because it just has such a negative connotation with it now especially because the republicans have like expertly shut that down and made it so that that word just sounds awful um, to prospective voters that Democrats don't need to shoot for these lofty objectives at this point. They need to say, yes, as a long-term party goal, that's what we'd like. But right now, we just want to work to something that makes healthcare easier. And here is what that looks like. Yeah. Because right now, no one can get on board with anything they're saying because it all seems like something so lofty, so out in the distance, and not tangible to the everyday person. Democrats need to start dealing in mathematics again. Theoretically, people are a lot more inclined to be more liberal than conservative on a local level for one reason and one reason only. There is accountability. If you vote yes on a local Los Angeles measure to increase taxes by to increase your local sales tax by 1%, and all that money goes to funding the metro, you have at least a five-year interval in which you have to see results. And if the results don't come, then you don't vote on a measure like that again. Obviously, it's a little bit different when it comes to the federal government. But Democrats have not made an affirmative case for any of their economic agenda. And then when you do bring up Okay, so just, I wasn't going to get into this point, but so if you think about the funding of universities in America, so public universities are obviously directly funded by state and federal governments. Private universities are still funded by state and federal governments inadvertently. So one is through Pell Grants, research grants, whatever. But additionally, 
if I run a university and if I know the federal government will, in, will issue an unlimited amount of student loans, then what are you going to do? Increase tuition more than inflation. At what point do Democrats say, hey, you know what? We want to decrease the cost of college for everyone because that's a good thing. And the way we're going to do it is by punishing universities for increasing their tuition so they can hire more directors and bureaucrats and vice presidents of whatever Kafkaesque thing you want to apply to. We want more money to go to professors, adjunct professors, and classroom materials. Why haven't... It's it's like instead, if you bring that up, then it's, oh, then why do you hate education? Well... And that might very well be some Democratic actors' agenda and, and their way that they would want to achieve free or reduced college tuition. However, because Democrats just say, free college, free Medicare, no one knows how they're planning on doing that. So everyone immediately jumps to thinking, oh, well, then that means they just want to raise my taxes. And no matter who you are, left or right, no one wants a tax raise if they don't yeah. have to have one. And so pe- people now think about the Democratic Party as a party that just wants to take away my money, wants to tax me as much as possible and give people freebies. And that might not be the case, but they haven't told told us why that isn't the case. They need to start saying, we want not we want free college, but we want to take money away from universities that raise their tuition and do X, Y, and Z. Like, think about it this way. Even with immigration in the 2016 election, or even in the midterms now, with Trump, he wanted immigration reform. And Republicans made Democrats start talking about immigration reform, too, after 2016. And Democrats want to reform the immigration system. They might think about it differently than Republicans, but they are now at least in favor of that. to discuss. Trump, immigration reform in 2016, what did he want to do? build a wall. We knew what he wanted to do with that. Democrats go, oh yes, I'm in favor of immigration reform. Well, what does that mean? What do you want to do? So someone, well, the leadership of the Democratic Party preferably needs to start identifying how they're going to achieve their objectives and what the messaging is going to be behind that rather than just here's our objective and think for yourself on how we're going to get there. Um, even Hillary could have done a better job with that in 2016. I know that she had, you know, comprehensive policies lined up that she could have rolled out as soon as she was elected into office and put right into programs. But she didn't tell voters how she was going to do those things. She just told voters what she wanted to do. And and that's something that's difficult. And, and it's also more troubling when within the Democratic Party, you have differing ideologies on how to get there. If you're Bernie Sanders, you just want to, I don't know, tax everyone. That's what the thing is. That's what people think. But if you're someone else, if you're a Joe Biden or if you're an Elizabeth Warren, maybe you think about this differently. But the problem is the Democratic Party hasn't said, here's the idea that we're going to put on the spotlight on how we're going to get there. Yeah, and I think that, It's fair to be extremely harsh on the Republican Party and on the conservative movement for not properly expunging with the more flagrant racism, sexism of the ugliest wing of the Trump movement. I'm not talking about Trump himself. I'm just saying with regards to the supporters, the commentary at whatever. However, I feel like not enough attention is paid to the fact that when you think about where this administration started – with people who are obviously criminals, like Mike Flynn. And then even people like Steve Bannon, who weren't criminals, were never at risk of being arrested for anything, but were just bad people. Bad, bad, bad people. The fact that 
we've sort of been able to push these people into obscurity into obscurity and find a tentative peace between the more nationalist protectionist wing that's more Trumpy of the Republican Party and between the strictly constitutionalist individualist wing of the Republican Party. That is a big feat. And that the Democrats are unable to, I mean, you have people like Keith Ellison, who is like BFFs with Louis Farrakhan, who's openly anti-Semitic. People like Linda Sarsour, openly anti-Semitic. People like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, does not understand economics. I understand that she got her BA in econ from like BU or something, but she 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 goes on on she's platformed by MSNBC and makes the worst possible case for leftist economic policies that she possibly could. And no one on the left is calling her out on it. And then it's it's sort of the ideological purity that we saw going into 2016 on the Republican side has now been replicated on the Democratic side. Well, the problem with the difference in between the fringes of the Democratic side and more of the moderates on the Democratic side compared to the moderates constitutionalists on the Republican side and the MAGA, MAGA, I can't even say it right, that's how much I hate it, fringe movement on the right, is that within the MAGA fringe people on the Republican side can easily distance themselves and shut it down because they usually distance themselves from the extreme nationalism and maybe the racist comments that come out. But on the left, you have something that could be equally as troubling to the success of the Democratic Party, but something that's far less easy to call out and distance yourself from because it's just someone's idea about economics and policy rather than them saying racist things or being nationalistic. So that's what's difficult, but the Democrats still need to find a way to separate themselves from those fringe efforts. But yeah. that's why it's it's just more of a difficult situ- situation to do so yeah. and probably p- playing into Republicans' favor. I mean, I feel like we haven't even talked about Kavanaugh on this podcast. Yeah. But that's because <laughs> it's just been beaten to the point of a dead horse. Because And also how much did Kavanaugh just become a Rorschach test? Because, I mean, I had this piece in Politico magazine that came out um, before the Kavanaugh confirmation, before the cloture vote. And the central thesis of the piece is that there aren't two sides of the Kavanaugh debate. There were four. There were the people who believed the evidence rendered Kavanaugh more likely than not guilty. So I would say most, like, sensible liberals. The people who believe the evidence in the Kavanaugh case rendered him more likely than not innocent. This is a position I hold. And then two factions that didn't care about, who didn't care about evidence at all. And so we just saw this national Rorschach test. And I think we saw the worst things on both sides kind of emerge. It was a better day for Republicans because they won because they were on the defense. And honestly, in a situation like this, it's kind of easier because as much as I think some members of the Democratic left would like to ignore, we are a country that's based on English common law. We believe in a presumption of innocence. The yeah. benefit of the doubt goes to the accused. It was likely that they were always going to come out. On yeah. Time. So the the ugly thing that it revealed in the Democratic Party and in Democratic strategy, and especially in the media, was this idea that, that sexual assault can become a political weapon. The truth doesn't matter. If you have someone like Karen Monaghan, the woman accusing Keith Ellison of domestic violence, you have someone like Winita Broderick who accused Bill Clinton of rape over 30 years ago with tons of physical and corroborating witness evidence. 
that they can be ignored, but Christine Blasey Ford with no with no real corroborating evidence other than her own testimony, which was obviously quite compelling, that she does believe, deserve to be believed. And I think that a couple of times, again, I'm not accusing all liberals who listen to this podcast of thinking this. I think it's a few top-level Democratic operatives who are sort of engineering this. I think that there were a couple times when the Democratic Party let the mask slip during this debate in which they said, but his politics are so bad for women anyway, it's like rape if he gets yeah. if he gets sworn into the Supreme Court. And that is such a dangerous message specifically for sexual assault victims. Because when sexual assault victims report, they are not looking for social justice. They are not looking to avenge their mothers and their daughters. They're looking to avenge something terrible and egregious, heinous, and hellacious that happened to them personally. They want individual justice. They want a slap in someone else's face. And I think that positing the whole Kavanaugh thing is she wasn't just speaking for herself. She was speaking for women everywhere. No, she wasn't. She was speaking for herself. Christine Blasey Ford was speaking for herself, as she should be. She should speak the truth that she knows. But I think that we're entering this from a from a more, I don't know, broader perspective. We're entering this very tenuous postmodern surreality when it comes to our treatment of the truth, where maybe the specific truth doesn't matter because the holistic truth backs it up. It's like taking, I think this is similar to what happened to Black Lives Matter, where you had a few instances. Sandra Bland, Walter Scott of black people, obviously targeted by the police with racist motivations, and those cops deserve to be not only fired, but also in prison. And then Black Lives Matter activists took that sort of truth that had been confirmed among a couple of data sets and tried to apply it to cases like Michael Brown, where Michael Brown, there was credible forensic evidence that he was the one who affirmatively tried to assault the cop um, Darren Wilson, I believe, who eventually issued the fatal blows that shot him and that killed him. Now, the error of that being that when you try and apply a universal truth to an instance that doesn't meet that truth, you are immediately going to have backlash. And that's precisely the piece that I wrote in Politico what that was addressing. I think that Me Too is extremely important, necessary, vital for the health of this country. I fear that the backlash on the right now will will render it ineffective because it'll be viewed as a partisan weapon in the same way Black Lives Matter eventually became viewed, which was not good for the country. Well, what everyone needs to distance themselves from the thinking of the truth doesn't matter because I hate your politics. Yeah. That that is really like when you boil down to it what you're saying yeah. about what is very troublesome in in wake of these hearings and and what happened with um, Blasey Ford's testimony and and her allegations. So that should never be the case. Um, yes, the claims needed to be investigated. Um, and thank God that they were investigated just because of them or like she was given the ability to testify in front of um the judiciary committee because of the claims themselves and not because of the fact of what some democrats wanted to have happen with kavanaugh's hearing or kavanaugh's confirmation regardless of if there was any truth to that testimony and so i i mean we'll see what happens moving forward i think as much as people are saying that 
this has opened the door for more people to come forward with phony allegations if they just hate your politics. I think at the same time, it has made people more aware of the fact that that is something that is incredibly awful to do. And hopefully that side wins out more and that side is far louder in that it will deter this kind of weaponization of Me Too that we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, what a tumultuous time to be alive. Um, But mainly if there's a message from all of this, I guess it would be learn from your political adversaries. Don't make the mistakes that they made. Democrats don't make the same mistakes that Republicans made in 2016. And also that the truth should matter no matter what. I mean, the whole like postmodernist hellhole that we're falling through in which everything is relative and interpretation is the only thing that matters. It's dangerous territory politically. I think that it's the common phrase is Republicans always attack Democrats' worst arguments and Democrats always attack Republicans' worst arguments, you know. And you can't get anywhere doing that. You can't get anywhere if you assume that your political opponent is just lying to you about their intentions, about what they really mean by what they're saying. And hopefully someone will learn something from this. Probably not. The media will probably continue to just immolate themselves in the same way that they did in 2016. But I remain hopeful anyway. I would, just as a side note, I'm curious to see what, after these hearings, what Lindsey Graham's approval rating is within his state. I'm also really curious because this and is a total turn. He is him. lucky he is not up for re-election in November. I mean, the thing is, he's been in the Senate for so long. I don't know. I mean, like, for instance, everyone was talking about Susan Collins. Like, Susan's, Susan Collins, your time is up. Susan Collins won 30 points ahead, 30, like, six points ahead of her Democratic opponent in 2015. She is the 10th most popular senator in the country. Susan Collins does what she wants. Someone like Lindsey Graham, I don't actually know the stats on, but like I think that people don't understand like how much a political revolution requires to be from like the grounds up. I don't think that Trump would have happened if Obama didn't lose all of the local Democratic seats. You know, it starts from your local elections, it starts from your state elections, and then it goes to federal. That matters. So I mean, obviously, get out there and vote, educate yourselves. Um, because those things matter. You don't take back a White House without taking back everything else. Yeah, and the same can be said. I mean, on the Democratic side, we'll see what happens after the midterms. I mean, this is definitely throwing a wrench, I think, in everyone's plan, but I don't necessarily, I'm not going to call it right now as being beneficial to one side over the other. Yeah, oh no, it's still totally a crapshoot. We'll see. We'll see what happens. As always, guys, um, comment on SoundCloud or iTunes, um, leave us a review. And you can contact us either through Twitter at Tiana the First at Avery Hogarth or through our website, thepoliticalpregame.com. Thank you. Mm-hmm.